Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JN in the AM.org. And welcome to another Thursday of political talk here at your premier source for Jewish radio. And we got a great show coming up. We're going to kind of focus on the Jewish again this week. We've got uh, some controversy surrounding the Agudath Israel of America dinner and uh, the aftermath of that. We're going to discuss that with our correspondent. I like to call him correspondent because he's on the show so often, Jacob Cornblow. Then we're going to go into a little controversy regarding this Sunday's Salute to Israel parade. I'm not sure if it's a real controversy yet, risen to the level of controversy, but there are people out there who are calling for a boycott of the parade. Don't march in the parade because there are groups in the parade who embrace or harbor anti-Israel intentions, policies. They protest the state of Israel, so they shouldn't be part of the Israel Day Parade, according to some. We're going to hear uh, from Kate Harvard uh, and of the Wall Street Journal. She's going to talk to us about the the issue and Richard Allen from JCC Watch. And then lastly, we'll do our New York political roundup covering the aftermath of both party conventions, Republican and Democratic party conventions with Bob Hart, Bob Hart being the political director of New York One. And as always, we are sponsored by Beckerman, Beckerman PR, Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. And as I mentioned to you before, uh, we'll kind of start off with a couple headlines out there with uh, one being this week, it being the season of political Jewish events. And what I mean is I go to Israel dinner this past uh, Monday, it's Tuesday night, and Monday was Tuesday in some Memorial Day and the like. So you kind of have that uh, thinking Tuesday is Monday. And then you have uh, the Met Council breakfast coming up on Sunday. Sunday is chock full of Jewish events for politicians to go to. The Israel Day Parade, which is a must attend for many politicians. You have the Israel concert in the park. And then at night, you also have the reception for the Israeli consulate, the official State of Israel reception for Independence Day. Yes, Yom Atzvah was a couple weeks ago. Uh, maybe they're coordinating it with Yom Yushalayim, which was, in fact, yesterday. And as well, just to round out some very interesting things going on in the political world, uh, you had big issue for Bill de Blasio was – the Long Island College Hospital. If you don't know it, it's at the foot of Atlantic Avenue, very expensive neighborhood. And de Blasio campaigned and got arrested during the Democratic primary. And I think it was a big turning moment, turning point in the primary in order to save the hospital. He protested, got arrested, saved the hospital. And then he announced the deal a couple weeks ago that he had a real estate deal to save the hospital. A buyer was coming in. That seems to have fallen apart for all intents and purposes. And uh, it's unclear whether Lich, Long, as Long Island College Hospital is known, is going actually to be saved. So we'll see. Maybe that was a premature announcement on de Blasio's part. Maybe he was just looking to placate his supporters in 1199, which is the nurses' union. And we'll see. Also, also, and maybe we'll get to this by the end of the show, there is a big story this week in the 
Jewish uh, – well, I shouldn't say Jewish. In the New York political world with regard to a tale of two Shelley Silvers, and uh, which is slightly comical if it wasn't a little bit disturbing. And what I mean by tale of two Shelley Silvers is the fact that for years the – Jewish officialdom in the Lower East Side opposed the redevelopment of something called the Seward Park Urban Renewal Zone. If you don't know, that's the kind of the lead up area to the Williamsburg Bridge. And they opposed that redevelopment or putting low income housing there in favor. They wanted commercial activity there. Now it's not really as much of an issue because Lower East Side is so gentrified. But they wanted to go ahead and they wanted to put uh, low income housing there. Uh, Shelly Silver. Uh, was opposed to that, at least according to official letters that he wrote. And it's a little bit convoluted. Read the New York Times, but uh, they basically the New York Times pointed the finger at him as saying he was blocking that. He said, no, it wasn't me. It was another Sheldon Silver who worked for the United Jewish Council of the Lower East Side for about a year or maybe two, gentleman from Crown Heights uh, who has since passed away. And if you haven't seen it yet, uh, you should definitely read it. Needless to say... Silver's office retracted the demand for the retraction or for the correction, and uh, the rest is history. It's one of those things only in New York could we have such a thing as uh, blaming uh, official acts on the dead man. But we uh, get into our schedule here, and we got a lot to talk about this week. First and foremost, I want to welcome back our frequent guest, uh, those he guy who tells us about really what's going on behind the scenes. All over the place. Jacob Cornblue, welcome back to Spin Class. Michael, it's a pleasure to be on. So, Jacob, uh, big story actually has New York Times attention. And I mean an article from the New York Times, uh, column from the New York Times, got the Michael Powell treatment and the cynical treatment that it is about the Good at Israel dinner. A lot of politicians present. Uh, give us, give the audience an idea about what happened and what's so controversial about what happened at the dinner. Uh, this, this was the annual dinner of the Agudas Israel, and uh, I think uh, uh, um, Mayor de Blasio uh, uh, took uh, the guts the to go to that dinner um, due to the fact that this was his first public address to the Orthodox Jewish community. So he sees that moment, and I guess his schedule wasn't filled on that day, so he had the time to come to the dinner. Uh, um, as he entered the room, the Navaminska Rebbe took the podium, and the Navaminska Rebbe is known uh, as head of the Maetzes Kedolatera, the spiritual leaders of Agudas Israel, and uh, he basically declared war on the new open orthodoxy uh, movement and on the reform and conservative movement, uh, calling them heretics and uh, um, explaining how they pose a danger to Judaism. And the Blasio was sitting on the dais at the time. So for us Orthodox Jews, there's nothing wrong about it. We go to Titian, we go to uh, speeches, and we always hear from our leaders how, um, you know, keeping the Torah, keeping the Torah is the most important thing in our life. Time and you know this is uh, something um, internally for us. But when you you know you uh, have a public official attend an event and you call the press, the press was present there and they were awaiting the mayor's speech. I mean, <laughs> you can't have bigger exposure than that. And 
So when the rabbi declared war against Reformed Jews and um, open orthodoxy movement, and the mayor sitting there, I mean, it's equivalent to uh, President Obama sitting there while Jeremiah Wright is uh, doing his tirade against the United States. And that's exactly what I was going to ask you, Jacob. Is a, is that a comparable type of moment? Uh, I'm not sure if, if you want to think about it, what the Novominsky Rebbe said was really just pertaining to Jews. It was more theological, right? We disagree with them on issues of theology and doctrine and halacha. Uh, Jeremiah Wright was criticizing the United States. It was more political. There wasn't really much political about what the rabbi said. But in essence, it's comparable because, uh, on one hand, you have, uh, uh, you have a mayor that, you know, is supposed to represent the entire city. And he won the overall Jewish vote, uh, thanks to conservative and reformed Jews because in the ultra-Orthodox community, he wasn't so successful as, you know, Michael. So, you know, when you have a guy that represents the community or when you call a public official that represents the entire city and you rail off against the majority of that voting bloc, I mean, what do you expect? When he went to APEC and um, the media was, uh, uh, you know, angry that he, it was a closed event, the liberal Jews were not angry that it was a closed event. They were angry that Bill de Blasio went there and gave a pro-Israel speech. Imagine, he only spoke about being a defender for the state of Israel, that every Jew should be a defender of Israel. And they, you know, you know, the emails obtained by the Daily News, you see all these representatives of the liberal uh, wing of um, the Jewish community, that they demanded the, the mayor should have some sensitivity when it comes to these issues. So if you attend an event that thousands of people are there, the press is there, and there's a rabbi giving a speech how uh, reformed Jews are, uh, pose, pose a danger to uh, Judaism and that we have to go in an outright Mohammed mitzvah that's equivalent to a jihad against reform and open orthodox Jews, I mean, for, for myself or for for an Orthodox Jew that listens to this speech, it's understandable. But for a mayor of New York or for a liberal Jew that sees the mayor sitting on the dais while this rabbi is giving the speech, I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, for them, for the New York Times or for uh, the liberal wing of the Jewish community, I can understand uh, the anger. I can understand why they should um, hold the mayor accountable for attending such an event and not speaking out against it. So so what I see here is potentially some bad planning. Uh, perhaps the APAC speech should have been open to the press, and this one should have been closed to the press. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. So what what about the idea, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and, and you started off a little bit cynical about the fact that de Blasio even attended the dinner, and when he did attend, there was probably some surprise. People really kind of mobbed him in order to, to get a chance to have some access to him, which they haven't had beforehand. Is, is this a start of him courting the Orthodox community once again after them feeling shut out? 
I think it's more, you know, they say a picture is worth more than a million dollars. And when it comes to this type, uh, these, these events, for the mayor to be there and for the mayor to get a picture with every mark and every Afghan for them, it's worth more than getting universal pre-K for yeshivas, getting after-school um, vouchers and priority five vouchers. Because uh, in essence, when you look at uh, the Blasio's record in terms of funds for yeshivas, in terms of resolutions from a teacher but pay, restoring priority five, priority seven vouchers, his record is not so, uh, you know, you wouldn't say that uh, Bill de Blasio went out of his way to help the Jewish community. So for him to be there, to get pictures with him, to claim that the mayor acknowledged Agudas Israel as the representative of the Orthodox Jewish community, I think the mayor was more playing politics and he understands the community uh, almost um, as much as we do, even, even more. And he feels that if he you know, hosting the Jewish Heritage event next week, the Shriyas, where every Macher is going to be able to pose for a picture in, in great, at Gracie Mansion, coming to Agudas Israel and the pictures swirling the neck, how the mayor is sitting there on the dais while the Navaminsk Rebbe is speaking and the mayor giving speech about uh, combating anti-Semitism and about uh, uh, helping the Jewish community. For them, this is enough. For the mayor, this is not a new start. The mayor knows politics. The mayor knows that if he cozies up to them, they'll forget all the uh, money that were not included in in, in the in the current budget. And uh, if if you ask me if it's a start of a new relationship, I mean I wouldn't say that because covering the mayor uh, at city hall. I didn't see anything extraordinary in this speech. It was a rehearsal of. Uh, different speeches that he gave at different occasions, but um, here you had a more broader and a different crowd. But there were other politicians there. Why are we only focused on the mayor, De Blasio? There were other. I know he spoke, and he spoke after the rabbi, the Novomitsky rabbi spoke. But what about the other politicians who were in the audience? There were quite a few there. There were quite a lot of them attended. Um, there were some notable no-shows. Uh, what, what do you? Why are they not taken to task? Or maybe they are. Maybe not. We don't know. I mean, when the New York Times comes out with an article against this event, uh, it's just uh, uh, obvious that they're going to focus on the mayor. They're not going to focus right. on the uh, 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 council here and there. But I'm pretty sure that if there was, uh, I mean, there were some council members there that are Jews and belong to the Reform and, and um, Conservative Movement, I'm pretty sure when they read such an article and they know that their representative was there, uh, they would pick up a phone call or they would send an email of outrage. So you don't know what's going on behind the scenes, and it's obvious that the New York Times would focus on the mayor rather than a specific politician that they have no interest to bash or, or it won't um, gain traction like, like the story uh, against the mayor of New York City. So, I mean... Uh, right. So, Jacob, uh, as far as those that were not there, there are a number of statewide elected officials running for re-election this year. 
And they were not present at the dinner. And I talk about the governor, the controller, the attorney general. None of them showed up at this dinner, which had in excess of a thousand attendees. You would think it's an opportune time for them to be there. And yet they were not. It's interesting that you raise this point because from my understanding, the governor is seeking a supermajority. Eric Schneiderman, we all know, ha- is facing a challenge. And um, he is the only, I mean, the only uh, candidate that might lose uh, on the Democratic slot. So um, you would think that at such an event where it's not like a legislative breakfast, this is an event that everybody comes Okay, um, other than um, Dove Heikind that uh, usually doesn't attend the events, and they may, Aguda may have not invited him because of this whole dispute with Shelley Silver uh, with regards to the tax credit investment uh, bill. But um, well, also the assembly think, was in session. You would think that the governor, a representative, uh, Eric Schneiderman, um, would attend such an event since it's an election year, and you saw um, the slate of the Republican candidates. Uh, John Cale was there, Robert Storino was there for for a long time, and you had uh, different candidates. I think it's more that uh, these uh, uh, statewide officials do not want to uh, officially recognize the British Israel as representative of the Jewish community, so they don't uh, offend uh, various uh, voting blocks that they are looking, that they are seeking uh, to uh, obtain while doing their Jewish outreach. But um, of course, it's a concern because when you speak about um, reaching out to the Jewish community, it has to be visible too. It's not only buying an ad in the Pesach newspaper. It's sure. not only uh, going um, in um, onto the radio, doing an interview, and saying. Uh, my connection with the Jewish community goes back 500 years. It's about investing. It's about coming down. It's about meeting voters. And I think Robert Serino, although he's a long shot, and uh, uh, I'm pretty sure that the Jewish community, even if they vote 100% for Robert Serino, he still has to gain the support of a lot of Democrats. So for right. him to invest so much time in, 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 in mingling with the crowd, I mean... You should command such a thing because when a person looks at uh, 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 who he's going to support for governor, when he goes into the ballot booth, he thinks, wait a minute, who do I know? I know Governor Cuomo's governor, and he's an incumbent, and he's the best governor that I could think of. On the other hand, I just met Robert Swin a few days ago. He seems like a nice man. Let me cast the ballot for him. So you always have the opportunity of gaining support from random people if you show up to events. Sure. Well, maybe perhaps they had an advance notice with regard to the speech, and that's why they stayed away. Jacob Kornblue, always a pleasure. Thanks for the very behind-the-scenes insight into what has been going on at the Jewish dinner circuit. And I guess coming up, there are going to be a number of events this weekend that you'll be covering as well. 
Absolutely. Thank you, Michael. Okay, Jacob, this has been class, and we are talking politics here on the Nachum Siegel Network, sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. And I want to welcome, for the first time on the show, Kate Havard, uh, a Tikva fellow at the Wall Street Journal, and also reporter and editorial assistant in the Weekly Standard, before that at the Washington Post. Uh, Kate, welcome to Spin Class. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. So, Kate, a provocatively uh, titled article this week in the Weekly Standard, Not Everybody Loves a Parade, Marching For and Against Israel. And I've always think, thought, you know, in the Jewish community, at least most of the Jewish community, uh, aside from the that very – maybe six people who are out there uh, protesting it, uh, the parade uh, is that the Israel Day Parade is kind of like apple pie, and uh, most people really love it, and there's no reason to really be all controversial about it. There was that issue with regard to uh, identifiably uh, gay groups marching. That seems to not have kind of gotten the way of the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Uh, what is going on with the Israel Day Parade? Why has it become controversial? So for the most part, I think that's true that the, the Celebrate Israel Parade is sort of a nonpartisan, uh, unifying thing for the Jewish community, especially in New York. But there have been in recent years the inclusion of these groups that either fund directly or indirectly groups that support the boycott, divest, sanctions movement, which uh, seeks to delegitimize Israel. Now, this has been uh, you know, a flashpoint for them. They, the parade committee recently added a provision to the parade where you had to sign an agreement that said you did not support BDS or um, and that you believed in Israel as a Jewish state. Uh, but there are sort of loopholes to get around this that some of these groups uh, believe in, like um, boycotting things from only the settlements is different from BDS. And there's a group called uh, JCC Watch, as well as a few other groups that say it's basically the same thing. And uh, the Federation or the parade organizers are uh, willfully ignoring this and allowing groups that seek to delegitimize Israel to march in this parade that is supposed to be pro-Israel. Right. So I guess the point here is that they're setting a baseline. You should be pro-Israel if you want to march in the parade. You should. It's not enough just to call yourself Jewish. It's not about Jewish. This is a celebrate. Israel parade. That's the that is the parade. So if you don't celebrate Israel and celebrate Israel's existence, then you really shouldn't be part of it. You shouldn't be participating. Uh, I, I guess so. That's the baseline for participation that they're that they're setting. Uh, but at the same time, you're saying, well, they're signing a pledge. They're saying that we are part of it. We do believe in these principles. So therefore, we can participate. So two questions, I guess, from that perspective. It's number one. If you're not in sync ideologically, why do these groups want to participate if the if they're giving being given a hard time? So why do they want to get involved? And why is there this backlash if they are, in fact, going ahead and signing a pledge? And at least on paper, they're saying, OK, we should be kosher. We should be kosher enough. Uh, so first question, uh, these groups want to march in the parade, first of all, because they either – promote themselves uh, as pro-Israel or even think of themselves as pro-Israel. Um, this is part of a movement to bring in this kind of criticism and make it acceptable for the mainstream Jewish community, or at least make it um, non-controversial to support boycotts of Israeli products. Um, 
So, I mean, there's a distinct political advantage to not being considered outside the French. You don't want to be uh, not allowed in the Celebrate Israel parade because then you'd be rejected in a way. It would mean that you're rejected from mainstream Jewish uh, community and those organizations. So, I mean, that's the first part. It's uh, It would be greatly uh, useful to them to be included in the parade. And I think, you know, for the most part, these groups do think of themselves uh especially the New Israel Fund, as a pro-Israel group. And uh, the second part, uh, the way that they get a, a, away with the pledge is they'll say things like, you know, we support uh, this group uh, that does not, uh, what is it? So there's, the New Israel Fund funds a group called Adala. Uh, they are a litigation thing in Israel, and Adala does not believe in Israel as a Jewish state. But uh, the New Israel Fund representative will say things like, well, that's not their main mission. They are not promoting that as their, as their cause. They don't drive it forward. It's just something they believe. And what they actually do does not fuel BDS, uh, which is frankly not true. It's a sort of uh, a loophole. And the, the parade committee accepts that loophole. And whether they really believe that or it's a kind of willful ignorance to avoid controversy is sort of, it's sort of unclear. And we're talking to Kate Havard. Is it Havard? Did I get that right? Havard. 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 Okay. I, I did want to know. It's too much. You know, too much sounding like the uh, like the school. Uh, anyway, we're talking with regard to the Israel Day Parade and groups that are participating and signing a pledge to be pro-Israel when, in fact, maybe perhaps they are not. Uh, Kate, why don't you give us an idea about who is the New Israel Fund? Because I, I think many in the audience probably don't know that much about the New Israel Fund, at, aside from the fact that they're probably uh, not the most uh, – uh, well, would not necessarily be most, the, most acceptable in the Orthodox community as far as their viewpoints. Uh, so who are they? What is it that they do? What's their agenda? Right. So the New Israel Fund was founded in 1979. Um, their mission, uh, they fund a number of groups to strengthen Israel, but, you know, they say their mission statement, to strengthen Israel's democracy and to promote freedom, justice, and equality for all Israeli citizens. Um, and they uh, build themselves as a civil and human rights organization uh, for social and economic justice. And this usually turns out, I mean, a lot of the groups that they fund uh, don't really promote this, or to them, civil and human rights means, you know, attacking uh, Israel and making everything that they do to defend themselves into a war crime. And so some of the, the grantees of uh, the New Israel Fund, because they are an umbrella organization that funds a lot of other groups, are groups like um, they used to fund something called the Coalition of Women for Peace, which was instrumental in creating the boycott, divest, sanctions movement. They basically built up a website that tracks these things and was a database that uh, these early groups used. And uh, when it became a controversy that they were funding this very BDS organization, they defunded them. But they defunded them late, and they defunded them after they were already up and running. They had their own funders, and uh, they sort of uh, the damage is done. So they'll say, "Well, we don't fund them anymore." But as critics say, it's too late to claim that you're not responsible for them. They also back um, this Plus Nine Seven Two magazine, which is very. Um, provocative and controversial. They publish sort of obscene cartoons of Netanyahu and Obama. They uh, attack everything that Israel does. They're, um, they're not 
what I would call a pro-Israel publication. And actually, even after they've done some controversial thing, the New Israel Fund increased their funding uh, for 972. Um, and they've had, you know, they've had a lot of controversy. That One of the organizations that they found were featured centrally in the Goldstone Report, which was uh, this erroneous U.N. paper that uh, accused Israel of war crimes in the 2009 Gaza War. And uh, that, which actually had to be rescinded because it was factually inaccurate. Um, and uh, you know, they're, they've had a lot of problems with their supporters saying things that get them in trouble. Which you know, they should either be doing more due diligence or doing more to distance themselves uh, from these groups that are not pro-Israel. Well, well, there's two issues. Number one, I guess, is the actual funding, which is not just uh, <laughs> if you're giving money to certain groups who are then giving money to other groups and then supporting other groups. Uh, it's one of those tangled webs. You could always kind of wash your hands of it and say, well, I'm not really responsible. But in the end, how how genuine is that? And then, of course, there is that feeling that you should condemn, which I think is a, or distance or really say this is not us. And to the degree that one group is required to go ahead and put some actual distance between them and another that doesn't necessarily speak for them, that in itself is a little can be a little bit of a slippery slope or, or a line because everybody wants to draw the line either a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right of where they are, and that's always right. been that thing. But, Kate, from your point of view, how much is this similar to J Street and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the show, to J Street not being permitted uh, to become a member of the Conference of Presidents and that controversy. Right. Well, um, I think it is a little different. I think J Street is sort of its own thing. Um, the New Israel Fund has marched in the parade before, so they're not willing to uh, distance themselves as much. You could say that J Street, um, almost their whole infrastructure, is questionable in terms of funding things that um, put the future of the Jewish state in question. Whereas the New Israel Fund, I mean, according to this uh, NGO monitor that uh, tracks funding for these kind of groups, they spend about 80% of their stuff doing good work uh, in charity organizations helping uh, women, women's groups and things like that. And it's only about 20% of their funding. That is still a very serious problem because they can do a lot uh, with the 20 Twenty percent, at least hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, but it's not uh, the entirety of this organization, and so I think uh, this is sort of a smaller scale version of the J Street controversy. I'd say one important difference is that uh, they've actually taken action against J Street. They voted to keep it out of the Conference of Presidents, and in this case, the Parade Committee and uh, the people that back the Parade Committee, the Jewish Federation, are not willing to draw the line and say these groups are outside the mainstream. Um, whereas with J Street, I think there's been enough pushback at this point that there was a, a structure in place to formally condemn it and make a symbolic vote and more than symbolic vote against it. I think they're, they've been willing to do that yet with groups like the New Israel Fund. And there, there's, with the New Israel Fund, I would say, a, a certain degree to some people of plausible deniability and distance from these objectionable practices. I mean, the New Israel Fund also says it does not support BDS, but it's willing to entertain arguments of uh, boycotts of settlement things from its members, 
but they have kind of a, a little wall between them and those people. Right. And we're talking to Kate Harvard from the Weekly Standard, the Wall Street Journal, who's out with this article this week about the Israel Day Parade and those that are seeking to bar groups that are insufficiently pro-Israel, or I guess you could say not pro-Israel, from the parade. And what about the idea, Kate, of the Big Tent? And we just actually had this in our previous segment where we talked about uh, the Orthodox versus non-Orthodox in New York, and the New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio stepped into a little bit of that controversy this week at a dinner. Uh, but what about the big tents? What about the idea that we should try and get as many people who are willing to have a baseline support of Israel in there? I'm going to pose this question to our next guest uh, in, a, in a minute, but I wanted to get your take uh, as, a, as a reporter thinking about this. Are, isn't there this idea that you know this is not – we're not necessarily going to have uniformity of views? Uh, are, aren't there people out there who just feel that we should just have that big tent? and uh, trying to embrace as many people as possible to, to be pro-Israel? Right. Well, um, in, in, to a certain degree, uh, that is a, you know, a solid position and one that we should seek to do. And JCC Watch, the main group that is protesting the new Israel's inclusion in the parade, says, like, left-wing groups, we're good to go. Uh, we can march in the parade together. He'll hold hands with them. But BDS is not mainstream. And most of the Jewish community acknowledges that and accepts that. And if they knew that these groups were funding that movement, they would not include them in this in this organization. So the big tent, I mean, that is why the New Israel Fund wants to march in the parade. That is why the Salem wanted to march in the parade. It's because they want to define themselves as mainstream. But in fact, they do a lot that is not mainstream. And uh, it's sort of always a, a sort of nebulous question of where do you draw the line, who's mainstream, who's not. But I think they're there is a broad consensus in the Jewish community that BDS is not mainstream. And, uh, and that's why uh, these groups, if they, if they do support boycotts or partial boycotts, they shouldn't be allowed to pass themselves off as mainstream because they're not. Right. Okay, Kate Harvard from the Weekly Standard, Tech Fellow at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class and hope to have you again uh, uh, for the next controversy. Great. Thank you so much. This is Spin Class. We're sponsored by BeckermanPR.com, and we are happy to have Richard Allen of JCC Watch. We were just referring to him on the line. And in fairness, I, we did invite someone from the JCRC, UJA, that's running the parade uh, to the show, and they declined to come on. Uh, so Richard has started this organization called JCC Watch, and it is essentially to say that we – demand that groups that are uh, participating in the Israel Day Parade, celebrating Israel Parade, that they are going to have a baseline of support of Israel. And I'll let Richard uh, do the actual explaining of what he what he feels. Uh, Richard, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Yes, good evening. Thank you very much. Michael, uh, it's greater than just the parade. You know, jccwatch.org uh, was formed by a small group of uh, activists on the Upper West Side when the JCC in Manhattan started uh, promoting and actively supporting uh, groups that are very detrimental to uh, Israel. Groups like Adala, Mosawa, uh, New Israel Fund, Beth Selim, these are groups that are beyond the pale. 
These are groups that actively work against the state of Israel. So I know that, you know, the conversation is always that we should have a big tent, but the problem is that when Jewish communal organizations, and it's broader than just the parade, when Jewish communal organizations actively promote and host uh, enemies of Israel and using Jewish communal dollars, charity dollars, we think that's wrong. Certainly these groups have a right in America and in Israel to speak their mind and to say what they want. No one objects to that. What we object to is the subterfuge of using Jewish communal organizations and clothing themselves as pro-Israel and then using uh, charitable dollars to promote their anti-Israel views. And those anti-Israel views are, are very, very well documented. You know, one of the groups that the JCC in Manhattan linked to and also that is funded by the New Israel Fund is a group called Adala. And they're, they're, right, we just uh, referred to them uh, in the previous guest. Yes, and there's, they, their founder, uh, Hassan Jabarin, in, uh, filed, uh, there was a, a suit in Spain against Benjamin Ben Eliezer, Avi Dichter, Moshe Yalon, Boogie Yalon, Dan Halutz, quite a few uh, Israelis uh, in the IDF. And uh, basically, he... Uh, he said, in this effort, Adala founder and general director Hassan uh, Jabrin, he sent a report to the Spanish court for the plaintiff's legal team. They're actively working to delegitimize and to prosecute IDF officers. I can give you many, many, you know, uh, instances sure. on, our, on our website. Um, but, but, Richard, let me throw yes. a question at you for a mm -hmm. second. Uh, you're not suggesting that the organizations that are marching themselves are involved in BDS. What you're saying is, by association, they have ties to groups that promote BDS, or they support directly or indirectly groups that support BDS. But not that there are groups that delegitimize the state of Israel itself, that they themselves support a one-state solution or don't support the right of Israel to exist are, it, are those marching in the parade. It's the associations that they have with other groups, correct? No, that's not correct at all. You're, okay, you're, thank you. You're, you're really you're wrong on that, and that's unfortunately the propaganda that they're pushing. You know, if you take a look at the website, well, that's why I asked Partners the for Progressive so Israel, me, so I appreciate right, that. Right. If you take a look directly on their website, Michael, at the, at the and we have a link to that at our, because they they put that link, they don't put it on the first page, so we have a link to that on our website, uh, jccwatch.org. But they call for a boycott of SodaStream, of Ahava Products, uh, the cosmetic company. They call for a boycott of Israeli wineries right on their website. They say, do not buy these products. What more do you need? What evidence do you need when they actually state, don't buy these products? And it's not just one uh, of the groups. It's many of the groups that the New Israel Fund uh, uh, finances. You know, the, there's a, a, book, a, a book called Financing the Flames by Edwin Black. And this is the author that wrote uh, IBM in the Holocaust, a very well-known investigative reporter. And his book, Financing the Flames, clearly shows that the New Israel Fund funded the setup and the structure of BDS, what they did was there was a group called Coalition for Women for Peace. I mean, what could sound nicer than Coalition for Women for Peace? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you always you're gonna better than have that than a coalition of women for war. So I <laughs> I agree with the way that they're terming it. But I see where you're going with this. Yes, and what happened was that they funded the New Israel Fund funded this group, and this group set up the worldwide structure for BDS. After they did it, uh, and it was pointed out with massive letters and a, and a camp a public campaign. The New Israel Fund then turned around and said, oh, my God, look what they're doing. Like they didn't know what was going on. It was public knowledge. They said, okay, we're not going to fund this group because it appears to that they're only working uh, to set up the structure of BDS. Of course, it was already set up. They got other funding. They arranged for other funding. And when you go down the list, the, the list is phenomenal. It is shocking. What it is is a disinformation campaign. And all we're saying is this. Look Look at the information, you will convince yourself that these groups are bad groups. What does it mean? It means that we should not, as a Jewish community, fund them, support them. It's, I guess it's the way that, you know, they, they, they kind of uh, give a, 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 sheep's and wo- uh, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing, because what happens is they're saying they're not against BDS, yet they fund BDS. So the point is, why should we be promoting them in the Israel Day Parade? It's very simple. All that needs to be done is that the JCRC and the UGA Federation needs to have every group sign a statement that they will not finance, fund, uh, promote BDS against the state of Israel, the Jewish state of Israel. They have a very uh, pablum kind of uh, pov statement that anyone could sign, even (laughs) any group that is actively working against Israel, saying they support the democratic state of Israel. That's not enough. You have to say you don't support BDS. Look, it's not a big deal. If, uh, if, a, if a woman was being battered by her husband, and the husband said, but I love you, I love you, does that mean it's okay? No. These groups are saying, I love Israel, I love Israel, yet they're financing the worst, the most horrible uh, uh, organizations that are working to delegitimize Israel worldwide. They, went, they funded a group, groups, actually a, a few of their groups, went to the Norwegian Pension Fund and actively uh, worked to get them to divest from Israeli companies. How could this be pro-Israel? Look, when they go and actively work to get is, uh, and, and state that, they, that the is, uh, Israeli military is committing war crimes and falsely work with uh, and give information, false information to the Goldstone Report, these are what the groups of the New Israel Fund are doing. You know, it's not just the New Israel Fund. You know, we worked with JC, uh, the JCC Watch. We uh, protested in front of the UJA Federation uh, because the UJA Federation was giving money to uh, one of their beneficiary agencies, the 92nd Street Y, hosted and promoted Alice Walker and uh, Roger Waters. You know, uh, Roger Waters and Alice Walker sure. are the Calls leaders. Sure, the boycott of Israel. Leaders, worldwide leaders of the boycott of Israel, they actively work to get the Israel Philharmonic boycotted at the Carnegie Hall. These are the worst of the worst. And look, our charitable dollars are spent hosting and promoting them. How could this be? It's because the UJA Federation does not have guidelines. And we've called on them to have guidelines, and they refuse to do it. And I have to tell you, uh, Michael, it's very uh, interesting. Why do they refuse to do it? They refuse to do it saying, well, we want a big tent, a big tent that allows your enemy in, a big tent that allows the, uh, the man that's beating uh, and pounding on his wife, yet saying, I love you, is not a big tent that is hurting us, that's going to hurt us terribly. 
we do not need to have this, these groups in the parade because what they're trying to do, Michael, is more than just have them march in the parade. It's more. It's to allow them to kosher themselves to say that there's a space within the Jewish community to actively work against the state of Israel. This is their goal. Look, the UJA Federation has uh, as its leader a fellow by the name of John Ruskay. He worked with Noam Chomsky in the first anti-Israel group called CONAME, Committee on New Alternatives in the Middle East. As you know, Noam Chomsky is a very, very bad uh, fellow when it comes to Israel. The group, uh, CONAME, their position was no military sales to the state of Israel. Could you imagine what that means? No military sales to the state of Israel? This is the person that they've put in charge of the UJA Federation, and it's not just him. There are other board members who actively work for the destruction of Israel by calling and giving space to these BDS groups. They say, we love Israel, we just want to change Israel. What they want to change Israel is, is not a new Israel, but a no Israel. And the new Israel fund is a no Israel. And that's what we have to be uh, cognizant of. So look, okay, everyone- we're talking to Richard Allen of JCC Watch here on Spin Class. And Richard, one last question for you, because we're almost out of time in this segment. Do you feel like you're making traction or you're getting traction? Uh, the parade is probably going to go on this Sunday. Most of the groups that marched last year are going to march again. So what what are you yeah, you know, what is your feeling as far as whether you're having an impact right now on, on your, this issue, which I believe is extraordinarily important. And the, certainly the Ruske Chomsky thing is, uh, if anybody is not aware of Noam Chomsky out there, he is one of the most vicious anti-Israel, uh, polemicists out there who uses his position as a professor at MIT to really be, well, just, just terrible. Uh, yes, that's all I you're, can say. Michael, you're but, right. And uh, Richard, many you many people like say I shouldn't, that we shouldn't be attacking uh, a, a person, but I think it's important for the Jewish community to know the history of, 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 of their leaders and the fact that these, these leaders have not denounced what they did. They say, oh, it was many years ago. People tell me, don't, don't bring it up. It was many years ago. No, it, what it is is that they, they, should, they should apologize for it, if any, if, at, at, at the least of it. But in any event, we are making traction Look, I've been doing this for four years, four years, and it took us four years to get this onto the front page. And it's, we're, gonna, we're not going to stop. We're going to continue. And we, we, it, we, it is making traction because the uh, global Jewish community knows about it. Members of the Knesset know about it. The Israel government knows about it. It cannot be hidden. Okay, Richard Allen of JCC Watch, uh, who is leading the effort to divest the parade of those that call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel. Very important issue. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class, Richard. Thank you very much, and thank you to your audience. And good luck to you. And uh, as I just said before, we did invite uh, someone from the JCRC or, J- or UJA to talk about their position with regard to the parade. So they declined to come on the show. And I want to welcome New York One Political Director, Bob Hart, back to spin class, and there is so much going on, Bob, post-convention, post-Democrat, Republican conventions, and in fact, there is a, in, in the Independence Party also held its convention, uh, albeit very, very briefly, the Conservative Party holding its convention, and the Working Families Party holding their convention. Who out there knew that there were so many different party conventions here in New York State? All helping us put it together is Bob Hart of New York One. Bob, welcome back. It's great to be on spin class. 
So, Bob, uh, you wrote some very interesting and provocative little columns, and I, I encourage everybody to get the New York One Political Edge. You should subscribe for, to that. But uh, it seems that Governor Cuomo, at the same time he was ruminating over whether to accept the Independence Party nomination, he actually had accepted it already, at least on paper. Tell us a little bit about the controversy with regard to the Independence Party and why this was even an issue or maybe even what is the Independence Party and why there were some out there that did not want Governor Cuomo, the odds on favorite to be reelected uh, as governor to take these minor party nominations. Well, the state's Independence Party really stems from Ross Perot's two presidential runs uh, in 1992 and 1996. Many states had to create a party uh, that to, for a vehicle uh, for Perot's presidential candidacy, and the state's Independence Party was uh, birthed from that. Uh, but where that party has gone since Ross Perot has been through a, kind of a long and torturous road. The city wing of the party, uh, critics have said, uh, is is basically run by people who uh, are almost like a cult. Uh, and the uh, critics say on the state level that the party may have lost its way, that it may not really stand for anything anymore. Uh, New York, uh, like a handful of other states, allows uh, politicians to run simultaneously on multiple party lines. So sometimes like a kid trying to uh, uh, get as many presents uh, for his or her birthday as possible, a politician will try to get as many of these uh, endorsements. Uh, so Governor Cuomo, uh, obviously he's a registered Democrat, is trying to get other lines as well. He got about uh, 3% of the vote uh, last time on the independence line. He wants to win, and he wants to win big. So even though he doesn't necessarily see eye-to-eye with the, the party leaders, uh, he's quietly uh, taking their backing. So on the day that he got the Democratic uh, nomination. He accepted it officially. He was also signing paperwork, laying the groundwork for him to accept the party's uh, Independence Party's nomination on Saturday, or excuse me, on Friday. Right. So now, why was that? There were some of the Democratic Party who didn't want him to take it. There were others that pretty much, I guess, didn't care. Um, there is a effort with regard to some of the Working Families Party, yet another smaller party, uh, to not give Governor Cuomo the nomination, uh, their nomination, I should say, and that is going to play itself out uh, this week. And interestingly enough, it seems to be a situation where we've had a little shift in the balance of power between Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo. Usually Mayor de Blasio needs Governor Cuomo. Now potentially it seems that... Governor Cuomo needs Mayor de Blasio to secure the Working Families nomination. Tell us a little bit about that. Exactly. The Working Families Party is uh, another third party. It's a left-leaning party that was created in the 1998 race for governor by uh, Peter Vallone when he was running. He wanted a, a kind of a labor party to be backing him. Uh, since then, it's, it's been a very pro-labor, uh, left-leaning organization that uh, politicians have, have, just like the Independence Party, tried, tried to get its backing. Um, the governor, uh, when he was running four years ago, got the endorsement of the Working Families Party and, again, would, would uh, probably like it this time as well, again, to try to run up the score. Uh, but some of his positions, particularly on charter schools, have annoyed the members of the Working Families Party. Mayor de Blasio, who's very tight with the Working Families Party, uh, has been uh, reportedly been meeting with them, been talking with them and trying to convince them to back uh, the governor for re-election um, at their convention, uh, the nominating convention on Saturday. Just, just one side note, 
there's also a possibility that the Working Families Party could kick the can down the road and nominate someone that you and I have never heard of, and later on in the summer replace that name perhaps with a governor uh, if if he agrees to maybe some things on on some policy issues that right now they don't see eye to eye on. And that's the old classic way of giving somebody a judgeship and then having to replace them on the ballot, which I think Republicans probably want to do with one of their candidates right now, a congressman from Staten Island. <laughs> yeah, Michael Grimm. Uh, that's a good segue. Michael Grimm, Congressman Michael Grimm, um, is facing a federal indictment uh, on uh, charges that he didn't uh, he, he basically on tax fraud for a business he used to run on the Upper East Side, as well as perjuring himself in the investigation. He's being charged with that. Uh, he's facing uh, a tough general election battle uh, in November uh, by a former city councilman. Uh, and it, it, you know, people sort of think, oh, well, if you're indicted, you're done. He is popular with his base, uh, and it's a Republican-leaning district. So I think that even though Grimm has been sort of uh, running below the radar, he could he still has a very good chance uh in that race. Oh, very interesting. I it's it, I think his campaign manager quit this week and people are kind of writing the epitaph already for him. But I, I guess from your perspective, uh it's possibly a toss up? Yeah, I, I would say it's a toss up. Um uh, a lot of it has to do with, with the Democrat uh how, how well Dominic Recchia runs. Uh he, he's a uh, a very smart guy. But he's from Brooklyn, and most of the district is Staten Island. Uh, and, Perot, and Staten Island, like most uh, small neighborhoods that feel isolated, I mean, it's not a neighborhood, it's an entire borough, but they definitely do feel isolated from the rest of the city. They do like someone uh, who makes their home there, uh, which is the case with Michael Grimm. And also, this being an off election year, there's no uh, presidential race on the top of the ballot. Republicans tend to do better, uh, even in New York, when there's not a uh, presidential candidate at the top of the ticket. So who knows? I, I think it could be a very close race. Uh, it would be very interesting. And, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, he is badly damaged. People don't feel comfortable voting for, voting for someone who's indicted. But on the other hand, uh, he's from Staten Island, uh, and he does have a strong base of Republican support. Interesting. So I want to appeal to a question with regard to your reporter side, uh, Bob. And we're talking to Bob Hart, political director for New York One. Uh, the brouhaha over the Shirlane McRae article uh, that appeared in New York Magazine and was then uh, probably in sensational he- headlines by the tabloids over whether she was a good mother, bad mother, working mother, and the like. But the mayor got out there and said – Wow, I am so offended, and every person should be offended by the New York press. Uh, is this his first time knowing the what the tabloids do? Uh, was he unprepared for this? Uh, what what is this much ado about nothing, or this is just uh, I'm protecting my wife, and therefore it's good politics? I think it may have been the last thing, although I don't know if it was good politics or not. I think the, uh, the there's a, a certain sort of a decoder ring you sometimes need with the tabloids. They'll they'll see a very long and lengthy and thoughtful uh, interview with Sherilyn McRae and uh, you know, take some words, maybe twist them a little, take them out of context, and suddenly it's Sherilyn McRae saying she was a bad mother instead of her saying, hey, it was a challenge for me. The mayor probably should have uh, just said, this is what the tabloids do and leave it at that. But instead he had, uh, uh, during a Q&A with reporters, really went off on the tabloids and said they, they uh, need to apologize to New Yorkers and to his wife. 
hey, that may have just be simply, hey, he needs to go home and tell his wife, hey, I, I fought for you. And maybe if he were silent, uh, there could have been some grumbling at home. Or maybe he just simply wants to show his wife uh, that, he, that he loves and supports her. But in, in terms of uh, the, making a, having a press conference or talking about it, it's probably not a great idea because these are the tabloids that are going to be covering you for the next three and a half years. And to, to go over every single thing that they do, uh, and not that this is every single thing, this is obviously uh, uh, more of a front-page story, but, but highlighting that is probably not a good idea because the, every week you could find something in any paper, forgetting about the tabloids, that you're not going to like, and you just have to move on. And last question for you, Bob, and this has been a great survey of the uh, of the New York political scene right now. Uh, with regard to the relationships with the press, it seems from my perspective that both the mayor and the governor have some pretty tense relationships with the press corps right now. And even though the fact that the mayor de Blasio claims to be so transparent and Governor Cuomo claims to be so transparent right now, neither of them seem to be engaging the press in any meaningful way. Yeah, I have to agree with you. That's a, a really thoughtful analysis. And it's funny, especially in de Blasio's case, because he was readily available to the media as public advocate, had a very good relationship with the media as public advocate. And now I wouldn't say he's in its bunker mentality, but he's sort of building a mini bunker on not having a lot of uh, what we call availabilities with the press. Um, and it's a guy who he's his own best asset in terms of his likability. He is a very likable guy. Um, and he can chat with really anyone. It's a different story uh, with a governor uh, who was badly burned when he first ran for governor in 2002 when he was talking about 9-11 and saying how Governor Pataki wasn't a hero that day, only Rudy Giuliani was. And I think that moment may have sort of scared Cuomo a little bit. He's done, uh, by my count, only one uh, TV interview uh, face-to-face with a political uh, reporter uh, since he's been governor, he hasn't been on New York One, I think, since 2006, by my count, when he was running for state attorney general. I just think there's a dislike there. I think th- there's a little bit of he's not in control of that format, uh, the governor. He'll do radio interviews, but that's about it. But it is for kind of su- surprising because both de Blasio and Cuomo talk about transparency and openness. And while you may not always like reporters, they are sort of the gatekeepers to the public and also asking questions that a lot of members of the, of the public have. Uh, and especially in the mayor's case, I'm a little surprised uh, that he hasn't been uh, more available uh, than he has in the first few months. Okay, well, we're going to follow that going forward. Bob Hart, political director for New York One, want to thank you for joining us here on Spin Class yet again. Hey, thanks for having me on Spin Class. Okay, this is Spin Class, sponsored by BeckermanPR.com, and very quickly wrap up with our knucklehead of the week, and that is going to ex-city councilman Dan Halloran, you might remember him. He's a Republican from Queens who has been caught up in the state senator Malcolm Smith and other scandal as far as trying to get him on the ballot and accepting bribes for the Republican nomination for mayor. I know it's all so complicated. We talked about it about a year ago. and We'll have to review it again. Anyway, Dan Halloran going to trial next week has claimed insanity. He couldn't really make the judgment, the appropriate judgment as to whether or not to accept a bribe because he had had brain surgery about a year beforehand. Well, I I don't know. I just there's nothing else to say. Dan Halloran, you are the knucklehead of the week. Thank you for joining us here on Spin Class on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JM in the AM.org, and we were off next week for Shavuos. Be back the week after for more political talk.